Welcome to the Are You Future Ready podcast. Are you curious about technology, innovation, and how you can stay ahead? Then you've come to the right place. In our series, we tap into the minds of people behind innovation. This podcast is brought to you by LR's Product Development and Innovation Center. Hi, I'm Linda Garrett, Director of Brand and Communications at Walters Kluwer, based in New York City, and your host of the RU Future Ready podcast. Today, we'll talk about innovation, trends, and tips on what you can do to become future ready with our guests, Jens David Olin, Interim Dean and Professor of Law at Cornell Law School in Ithaca, New York, and Nicole Jones-Pinard, Vice President and General Manager of Legal Education at Walters Kluwer, based in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jens and Nicole. Thanks, nice Linda. to be here. Great. Well, I'm excited about our discussion today, uh, but before we get started, uh, could you share with us a bit about yourself, your background, and your current role today? Sure. So I'm the interim dean and professor at Cornell Law School. I've been at Cornell since 2008, and I absolutely love you know teaching um, at the law school and now being interim dean. And I'm also the author of a, of a couple of textbooks um, published by Walters Kluwer. And as you said, Linda, I am the general manager for Walters Kluwer Legal Education. I actually began my career working for an ed tech startup bundling Lotus 123 software for accounting textbooks. <laughs> that was pre-Amazon and pre-internet. As you can imagine, spreadsheet software revolutionized the way that course was taught. And through the years, we continued to innovate, developing software and services to improve student outcomes. This is actually just what we do at WK Legal Ed. Uh, we attract the most innovative legal educators and create authoritative content and then build software and services to round that out and improve learning outcomes. I actually love the work that we do and I feel like it influences the next generation of leadership in this country. Thanks, Nicole. We can start with a statement that we all agree on. Today, legal education is undergoing tremendous change and there are many challenges. Nicole, as someone who's partnered with almost every law school in the U.S., um, would you share with us your perspective on how legal education has changed over the last decade? Sure. It's changed in a variety of ways, but I think one of the most uh, startling was when I first started at Walters Kluwer, I would frequently hear professors say that they forbid laptops or any sort of digital device in the classroom. It just was not, uh, it, they didn't see the value uh, and it was really foreign to them. This was obviously difficult for students, so I'm happy to report that this has uh, changed. Professors and students are embracing technology where it adds value and these digital platforms and learning tools are really important to enable students to be more efficient, to remember more and really to provide feedback to alert this idea of early intervention for students who are struggling. So that's that's probably or generally a change that I've seen uh, the greatest, but more recently, uh, based on the global pandemic, 2020 sort of drove two other major changes. One I've seen is this expanding interest in teaching critical race theory, uh, focus on anti-racist uh, principles, and law schools are really focused on this now and committing to this. Uh, and then obviously the other major 
impact was from online learning and all schools had to abruptly shift last spring and then spent time over the summer learning how best to teach online and adapt their courses for fall. Prior to 2020, I would say very few professors knew what Zoom was, how to use it, or let alone redesign their course for online learning. So before COVID-19 hitting the US, there were big restrictions limiting how much online education could be used in law schools. Um, has has the situation changed today? Are have law schools been forced to innovate around the teaching models? They have, and it was a very, as Nicole said, it was a very quick transition, um, sort of a trial by fire situation with very little time to to prepare. I have to say, at Cornell, I was amazed at how quickly our professors were able to pivot and uh, you know redesign their courses for an online modality. Um, but just as soon as they had uh, redesign their courses for an online modality. They then had to move quickly this fall to a hybrid modality, which I think was even more challenging for professors and students. Um, you know, we were in this situation at Cornell where we had, um, you know, authorization to return to in-person teaching, but with social distancing and de-densified classrooms. So we had to maintain um, six feet uh, between students. What that meant in a practical sense was that a classroom that used to hold 120 students would now hold 30 students and you know how do you you know sort of just make the math work in terms of you know getting um you delivering all these classes to your to your student body uh when you've got a limited number of of rooms it, you know what we had to do is run the class with the smaller number of students socially distanced wearing ma uh, masks of course um but then a certain number of uh, students would participate remotely via zoom or some other uh, online platform at the same time and that required a lot of adjustments for the for the professors and the students so the professor is managing an in-person cohort of students <clears throat> um to, you know talking with them giving a lecture but at the same time managing a very large screen with you know another 30 or 40 students on on zoom and having to pivot back and forth between these two audiences and it was and it was very challenging i have to say you know there there was a, you know one example of that was just the audio issue some classrooms older classrooms are you know mic'd for very strong audio at the podium but with the socratic method and the dialogue between the professor and the student you're not going to get 100% of the conversation or even 50% of the conversation if the Zoom students can only hear what's going on at the podium. You need to have you know, really high quality, almost orchestra level quality audio in the um, stadium side of the, of the, of the classroom uh, to get the other half of the, of the conversation. But once we worked all of that out, I think you know professors were able to to sort of manage both of those cohorts together. You know, all of this I think opens up a lot of possibilities. Um, but the question is going to be whether or not uh, the regulations really embrace and open themselves up to online education because right now there's just so many you know regulatory restrictions. So Nicole, in talking to different law schools, I understand that now there might be some purely online law schools. Uh, is this something that you've seen? Yes, so there are online law schools. They're um, usually based in California because California has uh, three levels of accreditation. Uh, the big question or or I should say the uh, the interesting facet of this is now with all law schools being online, at least for a portion, 
of a semester, how much of this will uh, be retained, right? That's that's the real question. What is the ABA going to allow going forward? Uh, I'm really excited to have seen, as Jens pointed out, the level of interest in professional development at the professor level, because this interest in pedagogy and learning science, sort of regardless of the modality, is a really strong benefit to legal education. And Jens, uh, what's your prediction? Uh, do you think this uh, trend will continue? I know even with in the corporate world, a lot of people are thinking, do we let our employees work remote? Do we do hybrid? Do we just bring them full time back in the office? So where do you see kind of law schools evolving kind of over time when we get to the new normal, if you will? My prediction is cautious embrace of this new modality. Um, in stages, uh, not wholesale transformation. I, of course, I could be wrong about that. I don't have a crystal ball, but that's my prediction. Just doing things on the on the ground. This is not a sector, um, a business sector that's driven um, entirely by the market. It's not market driven. It's a heavily regulated industry. Um, there's politics involved. Um, there's lobbying involved. Um, so it's not just what the, what the consumer wants. I think that there are a lot of students who would appreciate the, the flexibility of, you know, taking a degree from their, um, from their home. They wouldn't have to move. They wouldn't have to relocate. Um, there are other students, you know, for example, who, who don't want that. They, they want an in-person experience. I know, you know, especially college and undergraduate level for many people, um, you know, that's the, that's the draw of going to college is, you know, leaving home and getting away from the parents and, you know, having a social experience. It's, it's kind of a transformational, um, you know, gateway experience in a young person's life. And there are a lot of reasons why you'd want to have an in-person um, uh, experience. But I think, you know, the issue is that legal education is very much controlled by the American Bar Association. It's controlled by the different jurisdictions which handle their own licensing for uh, bar admission. What I see happening is that I think law schools are going to use online technology. They're going to have a lot of guest lectures. They might offer a course here and there with someone who's, you know, in another country. Um, but like moving to a fully online degree, I think, is um, is is unlikely at this point. The next thing I'd like to ask you today, um, a lot of the barriers to entry have been removed uh, to expanding globally, right? Any small business, uh, any small business owner worldwide can set up a website and become a global business overnight. Uh, what impact has that had on legal education and the need to understand the laws in, in different countries? It's a great question. So, I mean, I think laws very much globalized today and, and um, uh, in a way that it wasn't a hundred years ago, um, it's a, you know sort of a, a centrifugal process. Business is now global; uh, it's transnational. So legal problems are usually global or or transnational. Lawyers today need to be very broadly educated. Um, the sort of era of the small-time practitioner, you know, in one town or locality, um, is less prominent than it was uh, a generation ago. More law schools are adopting comparative methodology for their for their um, classrooms. They want to really teach skills, right? I think that's a big sort of um, uh, change in, in legal education. You know, as a lawyer, you don't know 
whether you're going to be working on a problem about, you know, Maryland business law on one day or something that has an aspect with, um, you know, antitrust law in Britain the next day, um, you know, because, you know, corporations and, and clients have such a diverse set of, of needs. So what law schools have sort of pivoted towards is, is, is really trying to impart skills, um, you know, to, to their graduates so that they have the capacity to, to solve legal problems. Yeah, and Linda, we've seen this too uh, in terms of our content and the distribution of our content around the world. I would say over the past five years, especially, we've seen a growing interest in our content. Universities in China, Brazil, Australia, for example, they are all using uh, Walters Kluwer content to teach US law to their students. So it, it may seem uh, like, why are they teaching US law in Australia? But corporations no longer are really focused on a single country. You know, we, we need this information and we are we are a global society. Do you think that uh, students will choose law schools that offer more tech subjects along with uh, the legal uh, courses? Yeah, it's a great question. Tech is huge right now. It's it's um, such a big part of, of uh, legal education. It's a big um, area of the law right now, and <clears throat> I think there's sort of multiple uh, ways that tech tech shows up. So one is that you know the the tech field in business, um, you know so, you know startups, um, uh, legal uh, uh, you know sort of entrepreneurial innovation at the startup level. It's such a hot area of business right now. You know, people in business school are very much, you know, focused not necessarily on graduating and, um, uh, you know, starting at a sort of large, prominent corporation necessarily. They have entrepreneurial dreams of like building this small startup with, uh, you know, with a new idea that's going to have a, you know, radical disruption in a traditional field. And they're going to be the next, you know, Facebook that completely, uh, or Google that completely blows up an existing industry. And um, and people are doing that, right? People are starting these businesses, and they are completely hungry for uh, legal assistance um, for all of their complex needs. Whether they're you know a small startup that's got two people, or they've recently grown and they're an incubator, or they're they've now um, you know are are are, are you know ten thousand employees and they're looking for venture capital, um, uh, you know to sort of you know rapidly expand and 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 grow their business. All of these different you know areas, they have tremendous legal needs, and there's so there's so much lawyers who are focused on doing all of this different work that I think students at law schools now. Are eyeing this sector, and they really want to. Uh, they really want to get into it. Um, and so we're, you know, at Cornell, we're really focused on that kind of, you know, tech entrepreneurial um, aspect uh, and giving students training. And that we even have an entrepreneurial law clinic, um, uh, which is, you know, giving legal assistance uh, to these these small startups. Um, you know, and we we've also built an entire tech campus. In New York City. The other thing that I would say is that the practice of law is evolving because of technology. And there's some, um, you know, industry disruption. Um, there's more use of, um, you know, predictive technologies, for example, in e-discovery. That's a big change in how litigation happens. Um, and then the outsourcing aspect of it, uh, you know, Back in the old days, lawyers, when they did discovery, would just go through these banker boxes of you know paper files and review things 
um, uh, you know, page by page. <laughs> That's not how it's done now. There's usually some software product from a data firm that goes through, analyzes an entire email server or the computer server of a com company. There's predictive algorithms that pull out search terms narrow uh, a kind of a universe of documents that might be relevant. And then it might not even be reviewed by attorneys in the United States. It might be re reviewed by outsourced attorneys at some specialized firm um, in a foreign country that just specializes on this, this, this one aspect. All of those are really changing the practice of law. And I think law schools are sort of um, trying to educate their students about that as well. I've seen schools use this as a competitive advantage for sure to uh, introduce these tech topics, mostly as it pertains, as Jens pointed out, to the practice ready lawyer aspect, whether it be e-filing, e-discovery, even even using Word, Excel, PowerPoint, PDFs, uh, lead, legal operations. I've seen design thinking, product management. All of these are being incorporated into both existing courses, clinics, or added into new courses or even new concentrations. Uh, so yeah, I think I, if students are not using this as a uh, measure of the school's value, it, it is something they should be thinking about for sure. Yeah, and based on this discussion, it really sounds like, um, you know, understanding technology and, and how to use it, whether it's for, you know, discovery or contracts or, or what have you, is really going to become kind of the, the baseline. And with all the positive aspects of online education and new innovation, it was still a significant shift for everyone. And, you know, how are law schools incorporating awareness about mental health into their curriculums, uh, especially with rising expectations? Um, Yes, technology makes things faster, but there's also, you know, an expectations of things being delivered faster, right? Um, and also, you know, just the always-on uh, nature of being an attorney. Um, how do you, how, what are law schools doing uh, in respect to that? Yeah, this is a huge issue, and it's, I mean, it's, it's an issue for law schools. It's an issue for universities. It's an issue for corporations generally, and it's an issue for society because everyone is confronting this right now during the pandemic. It's been an incredibly stressful time. Um, and I'm, I'm very curious to hear Nicole's thoughts about this uh, as well, because it's a, it's a broader phenomenon. I know that in particular, <clears throat> law schools and universities are you know, recognizing that students are on, in unprecedented stress today. Um, I think there's also been a growing uh, realization over the last, I would say 20 years the universities really need to look out for students and monitor their mental health. Um, this is a change uh, from generations ago. Um, when I was an undergraduate or when my parents were undergraduates, colleges and universities were not uh, monitoring mental health. You know, maybe the world was a slightly less complicated place um, 20 or 40 years ago. Although part of it, I think, is that there also just there wasn't a social expectation that colleges and universities needed to look out for this. I think there was actually a kind of, um, uh, you know, sink or swim attitude that um, while someone needed to look after people, it wasn't necessarily the job of the university um, uh, to, to, to sort of monitor this. And I think, you know, rightfully so, that view has shifted um, and you know, universities and, and law schools in particular need to be providing services for, for mental health 
they need to be monitoring students. So it's not just a question of passively ensuring uh, that the services are available. It's recognizing a student in distress and then pushing out services to them and really connecting them up and, you know, proactively um, not calling them out, but, you know, making a discreet <laughs> intervention and say, you know what, um, I've noticed you're not showing up in class anymore. Um, I'd like to connect you up with the resources as necessary because I'm worried that your lack of attendance is actually an indication that you're struggling. Um, and, you know, I'd like to connect you up with a, with a counselor or something like that. And I think during the pandemic, you know, people are um, isolated because of, um, uh, you know, being at home and taking their classes online. Um, uh, they're not connected with their usual network of, of friends. Um, being on Zoom, you know, uh, 10 hours a day for, for classes or meetings is exhausting. The usual sort of social events that you might do to get people to relax, not available because of health restrictions. And um, people are trying to balance um, either work or school with their personal obligations, whether it's their family obligations or whatever they have in their personal life, and are struggling to do both at the same time, you know, whether they have kids or they just have other family obligations. It's exhausting and it's difficult. And I think it's, it's um, you know, I, I think if there's one good thing that's come out of this pandemic, it's maybe a recognition that, you know, sort of modern life has these real sort of, um, uh, you know, great burdens that it that places on, on people and we need to look out for each other. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I've been encouraged, Jens, as you pointed out, if you try to find a silver lining in the global pandemic, it has been an awareness to these issues for sure. I know in talking with students a few years ago, they would tell me that the support uh, structure on campus was potentially the entrance to the door to go in to seek uh, support or help was right in the middle of the main hallway. Uh, so they thought there was still a stigma associated with asking for help, getting help. And that, that was one of the lead reasons why they didn't wanna go because it's a very competitive environment and they felt like, oh my gosh, if anybody sees me going in there, I'm going to be um, you know, labeled somehow, some way. So just just something as simple as that of, of moving the location of the actual room where students can go to talk to somebody, uh, it, it's just a, an increase in awareness that can really help. Great. Well, with uh, thoughts of uh, better times, uh, that uh, is a nice segue into our next question. What is one thing you wish you had known when you began your career? That's a great question. I mean, I think I would have, um, you know, liked to have known the importance of balance. Um, you know, I think that's something that I struggle with um, all the time, trying to maintain balance in all of my, you know, aspects of, of my life. Um, and I, I wish I had known that as a, as, a, as a young person. I think, you know, in a lot of industries and academia is, is one of them, uh, you know, being a workaholic, uh, you know, you're rewarded for being a workaholic because you can achieve a lot. Um, but that comes with a lot of uh, costs associated with it, um, you, know, um, you know, associated with mental health, like we were talking about before, <clears throat> maintaining balance with your, your spiritual life and uh, your family life um, and all those other things, which are, 
if not equally important, probably more important than your, your professional life. And I think that's something which I, I spend a lot of time working on now in my in my head. And I think I wish I had been working on that internally, you know, 20 years ago as well. That's such a good point. So I think I'm still working on that. <laughs> the, the one other thing I would add is I think as a younger sort of just starting out in my career, I had this vision that you had to have all the answers and that uh, you really set out to innovate or you set out to uh, be successful where actually you don't have to have all the answers. And really you just need to be a good listener. You need to ask the right questions. You need to communicate effectively and be constantly reaching out to your customers to find out what is keeping them up at night. What do they struggle with? Because really at the end of the day, you f- if you focus on solving problems, that is how you will be successful. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on the podcast today. And we look forward to having you both back soon. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Are You Future Ready podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode and make sure to subscribe to our Walters Kluwer channel on SoundCloud.